You're listening to Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob Insink, the Executive Director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And I'm Eric Dietrich. I'm General Counsel at the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services. Trailblazing for Justice. I'm Bob and Singh, and we're back after a, a, about a month uh, taking a break, which has been, I think, much needed. And you know, it's uh, kind of an intense build up to the election, and then I think post the election with the holiday, like Thanksgiving holiday, um, you know, we decided just to kind of take a break, uh, reflect on how the first three months of the podcast went, and you know, made some slight adjustments to how we want to move forward. But we're excited to be back to be talking about criminal justice and criminal defense in Oregon. Again. Um, yeah, Eric, how, how, how have you been this past month? I've been enjoying um, a lot less stress based on things that have happened. It's, I mean, you know, it's it's been an interesting month, um, both just with processing, you know, the continued strain of COVID on all of our communities with the election happening right in the middle of it. And then, you know, having this Thanksgiving holiday that people typically come together and, you know, it's been hard both because of the, um, you know, COVID scenario, but because of the partisanship as well. But I'm glad to be back on this as well. Um, you know, I think the break was, was, was good, uh, for me at least. And, um, I'm well rested. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. And I think, you know, uh, you know, we spoke a couple of times about, you know, how we want to move forward with the podcast and, you know, hopefully the structure will work, but what we're hoping to do is, is find some issues or themes that we'll explore for a month. So over, you know, four podcasts, um, kind of continue the same, you know, uh, structure of each episode where we talk about some news items, then talk about a more substantive issue. And then again, you know, try to leave on a positive note with hope. Um, you know, and I think the, the thing that excites me, at least right now, is we're starting to head into the 2021 legislative session here. So in Oregon, every odd year, we have long, regular legislative sessions where a lot of substantive policymaking happens. And I think the overlay of COVID, the racial justice movement, um, you know, kind of where we are as a state and a country, there's a lot of opportunity, it seems like, for criminal justice reform type um, bills to be introduced, to be discussed, potentially passed and signed by the governor um, this session. And in kind of in, in anticipation of that, you know, I think we, uh, you know, are going to try to structure the podcast around some of the issues that may be coming up in the legislative session. And I think, you know, one of the most important ones is sentencing and sentencing reform. So, you know, this month we'll focus on sentencing, hopefully gives, uh, you know, people who are listening uh, background on sentencing, some primer on how it works here in Oregon and where the opportunities are. But I know this is something that you and I discussed frequently um, and go from the high level, you know, this big general policy thing to the super nerdy, wonky, technical kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to, you know, talking about this issue over the next month. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I don't think it should uh, go without saying that it was an interesting week too, 
because, you know, I think we've heard from the governor's office that there is a, you know, a legitimate plan to try to shut down some of the prisons we have in Oregon. And part and parcel to that is sentencing reform. Um, and, you know, not only are we heading into this new legislative cycle, and it, it's interesting because every time there's a, a legislative session, I swear at the end of it, people I talk to are like, well, that was the weirdest session ever. <laughs> but we are about to enter a session where the traditional way people formulate decision making, you know, in small conversations and in personal group settings isn't going to happen. I mean, it's looking really much like we are going to have, you know, a, a session which um, we're still under the lockdown of COVID. And and um, it's going to really impact the way issues are presented to legislators and, and how they get decided. You know, yeah, I was thinking about this and, you know, we'll probably end up doing an episode sometime in January, February, once we have a fuller understanding of what the um, legislative landscape looks like about the legislative session and, you know, do a primer on that as well. But, you know, I, I was thinking about that and. On the one hand, I was thinking this is going to be an odd session where everything's going to be virtual, at least for the first few months, um, or predominantly virtual. But, uh, you know, I was thinking, I wonder if this will be uh, somewhat of an equalizer, because uh, it, 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 you know... for people who can't be in the building, who don't have, you know, professional lobbyists that can, you know, just camp out in the Capitol, you know, I would just, I wonder now because we have to do everything virtual, if that's going to help open up the opportunities for other people to engage um, and to have more meaningful engagement with legislators, just because, you know, you're not going to have, uh, you, you, you're not going to have sort of like the clicks and the, you know, the things that happen when people are physically there. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's interesting. I think it's mo it's much easier to kill an idea than it is to build an idea. And part of the way politics works, you know, in in state government is whenever there's an idea, you know, there's a good chance there's, you know, a small army of people out there trying to kill that idea um, through small impersonal conversations. And it's just going to be interesting to see, you know, how ideas get shaped when, you know, more stuff is done, you know, out in the open, because it's going to have to be out in the open, because it's just going to be harder to have those types of, of small setting meetings. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to the session. Our organization, you know, has a number of um, uh, policy efforts that it's going to be working on. Um, I know another uh, number of other organizations that, you know, work in the criminal justice space um, have a, a bunch of, I think, ambitious uh, policy efforts uh, in the pipeline. And I know your agency, I mean, public defense and restructuring public defense is always sort of top of mind and a priority for um, you. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that. But gut feeling, I mean, how are you feeling about the prospects of being able to continue to forward um, public defense reform? I mean, right now, things, um, it's interesting, you know, as a as a state agency, there's things we can do on our own, and there's things we we need legislative direction to do. And the stuff we've been able to achieve on our own about getting away from certain unconstitutional contracting models makes me very excited. Um, I was excited to see that again, the governor and uh, her proposed budget is talking about increasing funding for this for our agency for public defense statewide, and we continue to have advocates and supporters. Um, you know, asking about our reform efforts and trying to see how they can help. So I feel pretty good, you know. Um, I, I do think the COVID landscape certainly changed the 
pace of uh, our reform efforts, but I still think we're on the right trajectory. Yeah, well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Uh, you know, one of the things I think COVID and the racial justice movement uh, have really ex- exposed is, you know, through COVID, all the things that are completely unnecessary and that we actually don't need and we can survive without. Um, and, uh, you know, with the racial justice movement, how a lot of those unnecessary things were inspired, motivated, implemented because of, you know, white supremacy. So it's it's been kind of interesting to be able to, um, you know, think about these issues in these contexts. But I think, you know, it's really given us, um, uh, again, an opportunity to be able to expose and reveal and surface these things in our society that just don't make sense um, much easier. So it'll just be interesting to see if how people respond to it. Because I, I sometimes worry, like, if we can't accomplish some of these things in this moment, you know, then when? <laughs> you know, right. Like, so. Right. No, I mean, if we're in this, um, you know, situation where we got a, you know, realistic budget concern, we have to rebuild communities all over the state from the wildfires um, and we're closing prisons, you know, you would think there would be a shift in priorities, you know, about investment versus, um, you know, an inflated and bloated criminal legal system. But um, we'll see. I, I still feel optimistic about the session. Yeah. Well, so jumping back into the news, what what captured your attention, I guess, this past week or maybe this past month, just uh, as we kind of get back into the swing of things? Oh, you know, um, I've been waiting to talk about this for so long. Um, we talked about it in several podcast episodes um, before we took our break. But um, Measure 110 did pass. It passed pretty per, uh, convincingly here in Oregon. And um, what the measure did was make Oregon the first state in the union to uh, decriminalize simple drug possession and apply a treatment model rather than a law and order model um, takes effect February 1st. Um, the mechanics of the bill, um, you know, take small amounts of simple drug possession. So amounts consistent with personal use amounts for someone, you know, who's chemically dependent, whether it's a gram or less of heroin or two grams of less of methamphetamine or cocaine and treats it the equivalent of, a, you know, a, a non-criminal violation of the law. It's not legal, but you, you, you can't be incarcerated for it. You can't be arrested for it. Um, it also took some of the more serious um, felony drug possession charges and made those misdemeanors as well so that the penalties aren't so harsh for people who are using controlled substances. And those are the bare bones things that, you know, in my world are a big deal that I'm super excited about because when you talk about a bloated criminal legal system and trying to get, you know, behavior and cases out of it that shouldn't be there, this is the type of behavior to look at, you know, whether it's, you know, charges for driving without a license or, or missing a court date or possessing small amounts of controlled substances. I think these are issues that don't need the attention of judges and lawyers in our community. And I was glad to see the majority of the state agreed. You know, the interesting thing to this that I don't know as much in detail about is the uh, measure did take a huge amount of the cannabis money in this state that comes through um, on the taxes on our uh, recreational marijuana um, and routes it towards treatment and services. And I do know that when, you know, recreational marijuana passed here in Oregon, it seems as though the experts underestimated how much money 
marijuana was going to bring into the state. And so once they saw over a few years, I know there, there's a lot of stakeholders with a, a huge interest in that piece of that budget pie. And, you know, this measure did disrupt that and say, you got to throw so much of that money towards drug treatment. And we've already heard news this week that the governor's office wants to suspend some of that decision making and have the legislature revisit it. So I'm really excited about the way the measure affects, you know, the criminal legal system and my job and, you know, reducing caseloads for public defenders so they can devote more time to their clients. I'm still, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where it's going to land on the funding piece as to how this measure impacts. Is this really going to help treatment or is more of this money going to be used by the state um, in spite of the measure to rouse funding elsewhere? Yeah, you know, um, the measure 110, what was the the percentage that it won by? Do you, do you recall? I think it was, I, I, I suspect it was like 60-40, but I'm going to Google it while we're talking. Yeah, I mean, it, it passed pretty like, clear. I mean, like there was, it was uh, pretty clear that Oregonians wanted this. Like it wasn't close, which was, no. I think, which made it so historic. You know, I was just tracking this from the outside. And I think we talked about this in one of the episodes, but it never really seemed like there was very much opposition to it. Like I never really felt like it was ever in jeopardy of losing. Um, and, you know, I wasn't working on the campaign or involved with the campaign. So I don't know what the, the folks involved in the campaign felt like if it was like really intense and they felt like they were fighting the whole time. But from the outside looking in, honestly, it just felt like very smooth, uh, very sort of certain um, that it was going to pass. And, and it did. And it just didn't seem controversial in any way. And, it, you know, I don't know if that's just now a marking of where we are as a country and a society, but, you know, hopefully this will continue to ripple out throughout, um, you know, to other states. Uh, like yeah, Maryland, it was 1% off. off. It was 59-41. So it, it was um, it was not really that close. It was mm-hmm. it was pretty clear. And um, um, well, one of the other questions I had, and this is something that I haven't tracked too closely, but I am curious to see if the county, especially Multnomah County, can shift over the next year or two to creating safe injection sites. Um, Because I think that's really the next step is, you know, as we decriminalize drugs, how do we begin to sort of bring it out into the open and make treatment um, and even usage like in a safe space? So, you know, uh, we are monitoring it. People are getting access to, um, you know, medical care, public health professionals or treatment as they need it. But really moving away from, you know, the stigmatization that's occurred over the past several decades and, you know, really embracing the harm reduction models and, you know, just being okay. Like, you know, there's going to be people that um, either use this in a personal way in their own privacy. There's going to be individuals, you know, that do struggle with, you know, addiction issues, Um, but making it as easy as possible for, you know, people to not feel shame by it, I think is like the first real big step. And I think taking away the punitive aspects of it is, is, a, a probably the most important aspect of it, you know. I I completely um, agree. It is the shame if you think of like the criminal legal system and whether someone is willing to like take that step to steal or um, take someone else's property to get drugs. The shame they feel and the fact that they feel like they're not a part of the community because they've been made to feel so ostracized um you know that makes people and the policies almost make people feel more comfortable being antisocial. and so by bringing them back in telling them we're not going to treat them as some 
other type of person because they have a medical disorder. Um, I do. I'm excited about it. I'm really excited about it. Well, I mean, congratulations to all the all the all the organizations and individuals that were involved and pushed it. You know, it was um, uh, hopefully it's a really positive step for this country um, and, you know, creates a, a lot of energy momentum away uh, from the war on drugs and just, you know, that mindset, the, the values that, you know, drove that. That um, that whole campaign, and we saw some of that this week. We saw it was either yesterday or Wednesday. The U.S. House of Representatives, for the first time ever, and I don't expect this to go anywhere right now. But I mean, I think it's pretty important to note that they passed a bill out of the House of Representatives to decriminalize cannabis, and that's not going to go anywhere with this Senate. But you know, the fact that um, that did happen on a national level. Um, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. You know, for me, you know, speaking of uh, sort of the federal government, uh, the thing that's been capturing my attention over the past several months, but really intensified over the last last couple of weeks is what's been going on with federal death row and the federal executions. You know, this is um, quite remarkable. You know, we haven't executed people on federal death row since 2003, I believe. Um, and it's been for a variety of reasons. I think there just hasn't been a will or a stomach for it. There's been like lethal injection um, litigation as well. Um, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump ended up firing up uh, federal, uh, the execution chamber and started executing people eight people. I think so far, five more people scheduled. And this is extraordinary one, because we haven't had executions, but two, he's a lame duck president. And he, it, this is again, as with most of what president Trump has been doing, you know, doing something in ways that are atypical, unprecedented and against the norms of, you know, how federal, the federal government has operated in the past. Yeah. It's, it's not unsurprising to hear, of a pardon scandal when a president leaves office and to talk about who they're pardoning. But this approach to the death penalty is a new twist to a lame duck president. It's just bizarre. I mean, it's it's horrific. I think when Obama stepped down or when he you know left office, uh, part of the network that we work with, um, a bunch of those uh, capital defense attorneys nationally, you know, work on and represent uh, individuals on federal death row, and I, we're essentially begging um, his administration to commute federal death row on his way out, just because they were afraid of something like this, um, and he didn't. And you know, there's I forget the total number of people on federal death row, but I think. There's there's like 20 plus people that have actually exhausted their appeals. So that's why he's been able to, you know, uh, forward these executions in, in such a rapid way um, because these individuals had exhausted their appeals already. Um, but, you know, for me, it's kind of like a gut punch because I know a lot of the advocates had worked really, really hard um, prior to Kennedy stepping down from the U.S. Supreme Court, prior to Obama, you know, um, uh, leaving office and really trying to find ways to abolish the death penalty nationally, like try to get a case up to the U.S. Supreme Court, try to you know convince Obama to commute federal death row. I know advocates in every state are trying to, you know, uh, 
um, abolish the death penalty in those states. And for me, this has always been the scary thing. Like we, we always have been trying to tell people, like, if you have the power, use it now because you can never predict what's going to happen in the future. And there's never a good time around the issue of the death penalty, but you can only, you, you can't control it. So when you have these good opportunities or opportunities to commute the row or abolish the death penalty or, you know, issue a moratorium or sustain moratoriums, you, you just have to do it because, you know, you end up in situations like this and then you're powerless um, and you can't stop this. You know, it does show, I know, I think most people who probably listen to this realize that the majority of the criminal legal system is in the state system and state courts, but the U.S. Department of Justice does have um, a ton of um, not only legal authority, but persuasive authority across the country. They can really set the tone for national reform efforts. And, you know, one thing I'm excited about, about the transition that will happen, I have no idea who the new attorney general will be, but, you know, at least under the Obama administration with their Department of Justice, you saw active efforts by the Department of Justice on two fronts that are critical to improving our criminal legal system. And that is, you know, they went after public defense systems to improve them. They actually used the power of the Department of Justice to assert that public defense models were unconstitutional and denying uh, defendants the right to counsel. They also went after police departments um, to um, get them to improve reform and, you know, be measured against the way they treat members of the community who experience mental illness or people of color. And, you know, that's been gone the last four years. And so having an active and energized Department of Justice coming back um, that cares about these um, state issues is pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, 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 the U.S. Department of Justice, the Attorney General can really set a tone. And, you know, President-elect Biden, he, I think, is the first Democrat or first presidential candidate in the modern era to actually, and I say modern era since the 90s, um, is that actually campaigned on an anti-death penalty policy platform. So it was actually in his platform that he he would abolish the death penalty. And I think he is committed to either implementing a moratorium when he comes into office and then really um, pushing federal legislation to abolish a federal death penalty. And I think in part to help encourage states to abolish the death penalty as well. So I think, you know, to your point, they recognize sort of the the platform uh, that the federal government and the attorney general can have on issues like this. And yeah, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the attorney general, the new attorney general um, will be someone that has a strong track record of civil rights, but I'm not sure. Uh, I know I have like a few people in my head that I'm, I'm like, <laughs> you know, every now and then, like I'll try to put out into the universe that I hope, but um, but obviously anyone will be better than William Barr. I think at this point, uh, you know, not to be completely crude, but I think like a, a pile of poop would be better than <laughs> William Barr. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I haven't looked this up, but, you know, both Biden and Harris, you know, worked in these systems. Biden was a former public defender. Uh, Harris Harris was a former, you know, prosecutor, line prosecutor and, you know, elected prosecutor. So, I mean, these it's administration, at least that the leadership is aware of these issues. Yeah. And and the rule of law. And, and the, and the Constitution. <laughs> I, I, I have so many jokes I want to say right now, but I'm just holding back. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know, we'll let's talk hope, about... No, let's hope we can get Giuliani in as the new Attorney General and establish the <laughs> no, <no>. norms. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That, that, you know, watching him... 
you know, I used to think like shows like Parks and Rec and The Office were satire. But now that I've been watching what's been going on with the Trump administration, like I'm beginning to think that um, those shows are actually like documentaries. Like someone actually just transcribed their their meeting notes and recorded like their meetings and whatever government they were working with. But it, it has been uh, straight foolishness um, watching Giuli- Giuliani. Like, I can't believe this is an actual human being. I I had a long conversation with a friend last night and I was like, how do you get to the point where you're willing to say whatever you can, if you're paid $20,000 a day, like how do you get to that point in your life? Because, you know, you read about Giuliani's daughter and, um, you know, she's kind of horrified by her own father. And I just, I wonder, how do you get to that point in your life where you no longer really care what others think about you? Uh, I hope that never happens to me. Um, I really do. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, I guess that's what's been capturing our attention for the past uh, couple of weeks. But yeah, both of these issues, I think we'll end up, we'll we'll likely talk more about like the death penalty, especially here in Oregon. Um, You know, part of sentencing, we'll talk about recent sentencing reforms that passed around the death penalty here in Oregon later this month. But sentencing, I mean, this to me is, you know, the, the, you know, I I don't know, the core issue of criminal justice reform. Like, uh, it's always about power and the power to punish and hold people sort of and keep people removed from society. And, you know, that all revolves around sentencing and the ability to sentence people. I mean, we hear about like mandatory minimums as uh, these course of hammers that, you know, force plea negotiations. Um, you know, one of the things that always comes up in my mind is the way we sentence the years that we throw out to people. Um, they're not based on anything. It's all arbitrary numbers that just sort of build on each other. We said, you know, 10 years for this crime. Well, if it's 10 years for this crime, we have to give 15 years for this crime. Well, if it's 15 years for this crime, then we have to give 20 years for this crime. And then you go around the state and depending on, you know, what law enforcement agency arrested you, what prosecutor charged you, what judge you're in front of, you know, what kind of money you have, you could have the same facts and all those variables could result in, you know, a one-year sentence probation or like a 10-year sentence or 14-year sentence. I mean, it's just kind of all over the place. So, you know, hopefully over the next month, you know, our goal is really to sort of demystify sentencing, how it works, the history of it here in Oregon, and to kind of explain why these this arbitrariness and sort of randomness exists in our, in our sentencing structures here in Oregon. And to start off, I think, you know, this week, um, you know, you're going to help us kind of walk through just like the basics and how sentencing occurs. So, so maybe why don't we, if you can explain kind of what is sentencing? Like at what part of the criminal legal process does this occur? And, and at what point does it actually matter? Like as a public defender, when you're working with a client, when are you, what are you thinking about? Like when you first get a client, they're charged, um, are, are you thinking about sentencing? I mean, what, what's going on at that point? No, it's interesting. You are always thinking about sentencing and it is the most important piece to the criminal legal system. It's, it, you know, our law schools, our legal clinics, and even our public defender offices and professional organizations spend so much time training attorneys on how to do trials, the rules of evidence, how to conduct a trial. As we've talked about on this podcast, we're talking about three to 4% of cases that go to trial. And yet there is not like any real robust effort early on in an insurance career to, um, 
teach them about sentencing and how to approach sentencing. And while you may have plea deals in 95 to 96% of cases and trials for the rest, the bottom line is if you are found guilty of a crime, and that can happen in a couple of ways, either you enter a plea of guilty or you enter a plea of no contest, meaning you're not going to contest the charge, but you don't want to make an admission that you did anything uh, wrong, or you go to trial and are found guilty, um, you're still going to proceed to sentencing under any of those scenarios. So I know people talk about trials, they talk about plea bargaining. The common thread through all of that is sentencing. And um, it happens if you're convicted after a plea or after a trial. And um, you know, the rules are pretty uniform regardless of which route you go. So sentencing is, um, you know, I, I, I do believe in it. It's interesting how it, it isn't given as much attention as trial work is, but that is the piece of the case that um, formally when you are sentenced, that is when the court enters what's called a judgment against you. So, you know, when you plead guilty, you're not necessarily convicted. And if you're found guilty by uh, a jury, you're not necessarily convicted. You are convicted when a judge enters a judgment against you and announces the penalty based on that judgment. And that is the sentencing hearing. So, you know, as a, um, sorry, I was just like looking online and I saw Sally Yates trending. So I thought maybe Biden selected her. <laughs> she was rumored. Um, yeah. Is it still a rumor? Uh, I don't know. I just was uh, <laughs> just kind of just looking. But, um, you know, as a practical matter, you know, um, when you're when you're working with a client and you've you know been working as a public defender for a while, maybe maybe let me ask it in two ways. Like when you yeah. first start working as a public defender and you've been start working as a while, what when you start hearing like years, like let's negotiate like five years, four years, ten years, or whatever, let's settle to this. When you first come in, I mean, what is that like uh, for a public defender to have that sort of weight on you to think about someone's liberty in terms of you know like you're going to be removed from society for a number of years, and then. You know, the follow up question is, when does that sort of become you become numb to, you know, the numbers like they just become almost like poker chips uh, to a certain extent or some abstraction? Well, I think at this point, it's important to separate misdemeanor sentencing and felony sentencing. And we'll talk about that in, in our future podcasts. But misdemeanor sentencing is totally different in Oregon. And I just want to put that to the side for now. But when you're talking about, you know, years you know, the possibility of people doing years in prison. I can't help but, you know, Oregon is very weird in that we don't talk about years. Um, and I think it was a strategic decision probably made. Everything's discussed in terms of months. <laughs> and so you will hear other states talk about, you know, five years, six years, seven years. It's really weird in Oregon, but our whole sentencing laws are basically around a number of months. And I think that's deliberate to, you know, kind of confuse and obfuscate what's really going on uh, in terms of years, because that's what we are normally used to thinking of. But it's powerful. So um, to help explain why it's powerful, my agency has been working with the American Bar Association to come up with caseload standards for attorneys doing, you know, all sorts of criminal cases, like how many um, misdemeanors can you handle per year? How many minor felonies, measure 11 felonies, etc. And what the ABA found very interesting about Oregon is the attorneys in Oregon, the public defense and criminal defense attorneys in private practice, all of them, um, 
sentencing is at the forefront of when they when they get a case. I mean, that's immediately where the brain goes because you can tell by the charging decision on the indictment, you can pretty much predict what the penalty is going to be if they are convicted. You can tell your client. I mean, it's not up for debate in most circumstances because of our mandatory or mandatory sentencing schemes for property crimes and person crimes. So it's in the front of everyone's head. They're thinking about it right away. And it was really surprising for the ABA, at least in Oregon, to see how much sentencing drives attorney decision making, because it's almost as though the attorneys are responding from day one to the potential sentence. Um, everything is aimed at that number and how they can reduce it. So, I mean, what, I guess, um, walk us through. So when you get a client, you, you have, you know, charges brought against them and you're starting conversations, both preparing for trial and also, you know, settlement. Um, what are the factors that you're considering uh, and what are the factors that you're able to bring to a prosecutor? And I know it does change based on misdemeanors and felonies and the, and the nature of the case. But maybe if you're able to provide a couple examples of, you know, um, you know, are you able to bring, you know, a, this term we use like mitigation evidence to the prosecutor to help, re, you know, think about sentencing differently? Like what, what, I guess, what, what does it look like from a practical, pragmatic standpoint, from a practice, you know, practice standpoint? So the first thing you are trying to figure out as an attorney is, are you looking at a case with a mandatory sentence, meaning the judge has to impose it no matter what? Or are you looking at a case where there's a presumptive sentence if the client's convicted, meaning, you know, there's a target penalty based on their criminal history and what the nature of the offense is. But at least with there's a presumptive sentence, the attorney has the legal ability to argue that the sentence should be something other than the presumptive sentence. So that is what governs how how attorneys approach the case, because if you have a mandatory sentencing case, you are not bringing mitigation evidence to the judge. Um, you are bringing that mitigation evidence to the district attorney. And as a defense attorney, really all of your energy is going in trying to persuade that prosecutor that the facts of this case don't warrant that mandatory sentence. And so you're really trying to persuade the prosecutor. I mean, you could try to persuade the judge. You could, um, in a sentencing hearing where both sides are allowed to make arguments, you could make your pitch to the judge about why a mandatory sentence shouldn't be imposed. But to do so, you have to argue that it would be unconstitutional as applied to your client. And I think most attorneys feel though as though they have a better chance persuading a prosecutor individually than they do making uh, having a judge making a finding of unconstitutionality. So um, when you know it's a mandatory sentence, all of your energy is like, how can I persuade this prosecutor? And frankly, as a defense attorney, one of the first thing you do typically is you look at the indictment, you look at the charges on the indictment to figure out if it's a mandatory or presumptive sentence. And then at least me, I looked at the name on the bottom of the indictment to see which prosecutor I was working with, because that was going to be who I was trying to persuade. Whereas if it's a presumptive sentence scenario, um, you, you have an opportunity to present that type of mitigation evidence that you're talking about to the court and to make uh, an argument and advocate for something other than the presumptive sentence. And a judge really has a role in that type of a sentencing hearing that they don't in a mandatory sentence case. So I kind of want to, um, you know, break these two paths apart, like the trial and the plea, because, you know, as you said, the audience is different in, in, in the sentencing decision-making at that point. Um, so in the plea negotiation, like you said, you're really trying to persuade the prosecutor to 
agree essentially to what the conviction will be based on a conversation of the facts and, you know, mitigation evidence or evidence of things that demonstrate the facts aren't as extreme or extraordinary, or perhaps what the police report says that there were some, you know, additional circumstances that, you know, make the individual less culpable. So, you know, how does that agreement look like? You know, you're working with a client and you're trying to convince the prosecutor, you know, they've been, you know, charged with these certain charges. And, you know, we've talked about previously, like how the system's really designed to punish you if you try to affirm your rights, like if you try to go to a trial. So when you're talking about sentencing, you know, trying to negotiate something with a prosecutor versus go to trial, I mean, what are the discrepancies or the disparities that you see as far as like the types of sentences that are being offered by a prosecutor in the settlement stage versus, you know, like why would you want to settle versus go to trial? I guess that's the basic question. Yeah, so... Um there's a couple of reasons why people would, would want to settle rather than go to trial. One is because the prosecutor um, is in charge of filing the number of charges against an individual. Um, and, you know, the number of charges, if you're convicted of them, can not only impact your sentence, but your criminal history. Uh, there's an obvious incentive to want to work with the prosecutor, if they, particularly if they file like numerous charges against you to get some of those dismissed. I mean, that's certainly one incentive people have to want to work and towards a plea bargain. Another is certainty, and that's the biggest one. Um, when you um, are charged with an assault too, and your attorney tells you that um, if you're convicted of this, you're looking at a mandatory 70-month sentence, um, you can see that, you can feel that, that feels certain. And so that's another reason that drives people to really want to just work against that number and try to lower it and try to settle the case. Um, it's interesting, cases go to trial, in my opinion, not necessarily based on the strength of the case from the prosecution or the defense, that really influences how the negotiations work. Cases often go to trial when the incentives line up that there's um, really no risk of going to trial. So if you have a case where the prosecutor isn't going to give you the plea deal you're seeking, but as the defense attorney, you're realizing if you go to trial, you're probably going to get end up with about the same sentence as what the prosecutor's already offering you. Even if you have a lousy case, um, those types of cases go to trial because the incentives say they should. And so I do think it's important for people to realize that it's not like it's the best cases that go to trial. It's the cases where the defense bar and the prosecution really don't know what to do with the case mm -hmm. um, or the incentives align such that if it goes to trial, neither side is harmed. Um, um, you know, I mean, I think the next episode, you know, just um, as, you know, folks are listening to this, we're going to talk a little bit more about the vernacular, sort of these concepts of presumptive sentences and mandatory minimum. So we'll, we'll dig more deeply into to what these mean, but you know, today is just to try to give a little bit of an overview of the flow of a case and why sentencing is so important. And one thing I want to add, it's really important that you be perceived as a defense attorney that's willing to go to trial because, I mean, this is, this is the truth. I mean, a prosecutor is an individual with a job that probably has a family and wants to keep their job and their biggest fear is losing trials that make the newspaper. And unless you're an attorney who they credibly believe will take you to trial, um, you know, that's, that's going to impact the type of offers you get as an attorney because your call to them is I will take you to a jury trial and make you prove your case to members of the community. And if they don't think as a defense attorney, you have the stones to do that, that's really going to impact the type of offers your clients get. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's kind of a, 
an important aspect of all of this because I think you know you often hear, or what I what I've heard sort of anecdotally is like you know there are defense attorneys that just won't go to trial and you know are just churning out like pleas and things like that and that have that reputation and how it connects to you know what you're talking about is yeah. um, I think an important element to it. Um, so when you're negotiating with a prosecutor and you come to some agreement, what happens next sort of mechanically at that point? So you've agreed upon, you know, they were charged with X crimes. You were able to successfully negotiate to Y crimes, um, you know, something less than what was initially charged. And you come to some agreement. Um, so what happens mechanically at that point? Yeah, no, I think it's important to mention that, you know, it's not just the attorneys that need to be on board with the agreement, but the defendant would be as well. And so if as a defense attorney, if your client, um, you know, you negotiate a resolution with the district attorney, then, you know, the mechanics, the next steps would be to contact the court and to let them know that you've reached an agreement and to schedule a plea and sentencing. And, you know, you try to get on the court's docket to do so. And um, but I, I think that's a good point to mention that plea and sentencing are two distinct phases and actually they don't have to happen at the same time. And by statute, the defendant always has a right to postpone sentencing two days after the plea if they, if they want to, um, which I've always wondered about where that rule came from. I, I, I presume it has something to do with, you know, being in County and wanting to wrap up affairs before you go to prison. But um, you would schedule the case, you would schedule it for a plea. And um, you know, that's where things are kind of interesting to me. And I've seen a change in culture by the judges, at least during my practicing career, because, a plea bargain uh, is supposed to be a recommendation by the attorneys, but sentencing should be, unless it's a man, well, even if it is a mandatory sentence, but sentencing is something the court is supposed to have exclusive authority over. And, you know, when I was a new attorney, um, judges played a more active role in sentencing. They would question the recommendations and they would often deviate from the recommendations. And, you know, you see this, I mean, in a more national way right now with what's going on with Michael Flynn um, being prosecuted and the judge playing a really active role in trying to determine and whether the state can dismiss the case after the client's pled guilty. But, um, you know, typically you, as the defense and prosecution, would present a joint recommendation to the court. And then the court would have to decide whether they wanted to follow that recommendation or do something else. And at least in courts nowadays, it really seems as though the judges are more inclined to just say, you know what, this is negotiated. I'm going to follow it. I think it's important to note, though, that legally they do not have to. And historically, they didn't always follow it. Yeah, I mean, the the standard that they're looking at is at that point, is it just a manifest injustice or something like that or something along those lines? Because, you know, you say that, you know, judges could actively be involved in sentencing at that point. But in reality, is it just a rubber stamp unless it's something just completely, you know, baffling? Yeah, I think that's right. There's no legal standard yeah. per se um, because both parties are making the same recommendation. Um, I mean, I guess the question really is, do the judges view their role as simply 
rubber stamping negotiations from adversarial parties, or do they want to have a larger role as the elected officials in the community and actively try to determine whether the sentence was the appropriate sentence? And, you know, I, I, again, I just, attorneys like certainty, clients like certainty, I get that. And so there is pressure from both sides, prosecution and defense for the judge to follow the recommendation. Personally, I would prefer to have a bench that didn't always follow the recommendations. You have to understand that when you're negotiating a a case, you often don't have the most leverage and Mm-hmm. Um, from the defense side. And yeah. it's not like a normal situation. You not only don't have a lot of leverage, but you have a you have very little leverage in a system that is so skewed against the defendant um, that you, oftentimes you'd hope the judge would bring some common sense in and be like, I get that from the perspective of the client that this is the best resolution they could persuade out of the DA. But um, again, the court does have authority to um, impose whatever sentence they legally can and um, they they just don't often deviate much nowadays. So on the trial side, after you, you go to trial, you know you have the defense and the prosecution presenting the facts to the jury. You have your witnesses. You have your evidence. The jury comes back with a finding of guilt and uh, and finds your client guilty. So what happens mechanically at that point uh, for sentencing? I mean, because it's a very different process than what you just described as far as like, you know, in a plea negotiation. Yeah. So if you go to trial and your client is found guilty, um, again, I think it's important to emphasize that jury verdict form that comes from the jury. That is not the conviction in and of itself. That is a finding of guilt by people in the community. Um, but what that legally authorizes is the sentencing phase. And so um, in my experience, it's very rare that you're convicted and go right into sentencing. Normally, the sentencing hearing um, is set somewhere down the road in the future so that both sides can prepare to make you know their arguments for sentencing. And um, those arguments may be persuasive. You know, if it's again, if it's a measure 11 case and your client's convicted, your only argument at sentencing is going to be on the constitutional of the measure 11 sentence. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a real legal argument that you have to put together. Um, but for the most part, sentencing, um, is going to be, um, you know, based on the advocacy of the sides, whatever mitigation evidence the defense brings forward, whatever, um, you know, evidence the prosecution wants to bring forward for uh, additional incarceration, the judge would have to to weigh those factors. But it usually doesn't happen right after the trial. It usually happens at some date down the road. And that's not just so um, people can put their arguments together. It's also, I think, so there's a cooling off period. Um, you know, when you hear impactful testimony, um, that's often not the best time for the judge and the attorneys to be like trying to sort out what the consequence should be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so fascinating to me that, um, you know, whether it's, you know, misdemeanors, probation, you know, supervision, all the way up to felony convictions and felony sentencing, you know, the, the, the idea that we are going to deprive someone of liberty to some extent, you know, whether it's uh, depriving them or limiting or restricting their movements or their activities out in the community to, you know, detaining them in a carceral uh, or a detention facility, um, you know, that there, there isn't really much 
training that judges or attorneys go through, like you had mentioned at the outset, to really understand conceptually what this means and the impact that it's going to have on the community, like that individual, the broader community, even to the victim, you know, like, and even to the individuals that are overseeing this. Because I think one of the things that I always uh, wonder about is sort of the vicarious trauma of, you know, your job is putting people in cages or, you know, trying to limit the time that people are in putting cages. Like what, what is, it's such a weird and perverse kind of, you know, place to be working in. I mean, what is your general, like, what has your general thinking or thoughts been around just that sort of personal aspect of it? I mean, it's really hard because um, the clients are relying you are relying upon you for advice. But, you know, particularly if they're in custody, you know, they may be getting more accurate information and probably are about what they should be expecting from people that they are in custody with than they are from their attorneys. Because frankly, those folks know, um, you know, a lot more than the attorneys typically do about what to expect. So as an attorney, you're trying to be humble, you're trying to prepare them, um, both emotionally and practically for what's about to happen. But there's there's often a limit not only on what, you know, the attorney knows about the ins and outs of DOC policy and culture and what to expect, but just training on how to even have those conversations with clients. So it's it's not, I mean, it's really not the easiest thing because, um, you know, my boss, uh, he practiced before the sentencing guidelines and everything came into effect in 1989 and measure 11 in 1994. And prior to then, you had a really robust sentencing practice in Oregon. And, you know, he often says, and I've heard this from other judges too, it's almost like we have a generation of lawyers and judges who don't know how to do sentencing anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right because so much of it has been automated. Um, so I think it's really hard, at least from the defense perspective, um, to really know how to connect with these clients and prepare them um, other than trying to give them. They have a lot of questions about programming frequently. Hmm. What are they going to be eligible for? And so much of that stuff is in flux by the Department of Corrections. You don't want to like set your client up by getting their hopes up about something you can't guarantee they're going to get. And so it's a really hard conversation to have, frankly, because you often feel as though you don't have the information they're seeking. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of the clients, because we work, most of our clients are in custody or in, in, in incarcerated. And, you know, we often hear from them that the, the trauma that they experienced of going through that, you know, the, the plea negotiations, a trial, sentencing, and into custody and not really understanding like what was happening. Oftentimes, people are at their lowest or in their worst, like in the throes of an addiction crisis or mental health crisis. So their ability to even be um, fully aware of or you know what's going on is also limited um and you know they just didn't really have any understanding of like what incarceration meant and and i've often wondered like why we don't have you know social workers and therapists out at the front end to be working with clients and also um system stakeholders you know like judges and defenders and prosecutors to to kind of talk about this and to have the space to be able to understand the magnitude of like what's happening. Um, Because I I mean, I I don't know, I've never really quite understood, like, how do you talk to someone about, you know, yesterday you were out here, you know, now for the next five, 10 to whatever years it's going to be, you're going to be in a cage. I think it's what's clear from my experience doing this work for 10 years and talking to people like you and, frankly, driving uh, five and a half hours over Thanksgiving and listening to the podcast Ear Hustle about how folks ended up 
you know, in incarceration is that we really fail to prepare people for incarceration, like systematically, not just the defense bar, not just the judges, but there's really not a lot of um, information that's going to help them understand what they're facing. And when you hear people, it is traumatic because they, they go into these settings and they're not prepared for them. And, you know, I listened to that, that Ear Hustle podcast driving back and it was an amazing story about incarcerated parents on this particular episode. And, and, and the woman who was going to prison, you know, she talked about how she met her, you know, husband and uncle at a Starbucks and was driven to the police station. And then she went to prison for 10 years and she talked about how she didn't really know what that drive to the police station was going to be like, how much she would have done differently if she would have known that like literally that day was going to mark a huge transition for the next decade of her life. And she just never felt like she was prepared for it. So, you know, as a defense attorney, I mean, like as we're wrapping up, um, you know, kind of these final thoughts on sentencing, you know, when you're talking to a client about sentencing, I mean, what is that like when you're talking to them about like months or, you know, years, um, you know, you could take this deal for two years versus go to trial for, you know, five years and you may get five years. I mean, what is that conversation like when you're talking about sentencing at that point? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to know that you have to be able to break bad news to people. That's just part of the job. You have to be able to do it. The client needs to understand the the, the legal landscape in which they're um, operating. And so you do have to be able to have those hard conversations and they rely upon you to have those hard conversations. Um, one of the things though, that I think attorneys, again, this is a training issue and need to be more vigilant on is you can really set a client up to want to take a plea. If you keep informing them of the parade of horribles that could happen to them with regularity and almost demoralize the client by making them seem that the consequence is inevitable. So when you're talking to them about these outcomes, you need to be honest, you need to inform them of them. But I also think it's important that, you know, you be professional and, you know, not just because of your expectation that something is likely to happen automatically route them that way by planting seeds of doomsday. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really important part of the job and it's really hard, but you have to be honest with the clients and let them know that um, whether they have options or not, because, you know, ultimately, um, and this is one of the hardest things for attorneys and clients is that the lawyer is in charge of most aspects of the case, but the decision to plead, the decision to go to trial and the decision to have a jury trial or a judge trial are the client's decisions. And you want to make sure the clients, it's their decision, but you also don't necessarily want to, you know, brainwash them and just put your opinion in their head. I mean, it needs to be a real honest conversation where they have input about the process. And that takes time. And it often takes time that lawyers don't have the time to give. And I think because so much of sentencing seems inevitable, that's a big piece that's missing in prepping these folks for incarceration. Um, I think that's why a lot of them don't understand how they got there. And I, I do think that's a failure of the system as a whole. Um, you know, when you're talking um, both in terms of 
of the attorney's responsibility in the courts to have real, um, you know, discussions in place so people are prepared for what's about to happen. Well, you know, as we mentioned, we're going to spend the whole month uh, talking about sentencing. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into a, a lot of the things that you talked about today. And, you know, today was just meant to kind of introduce sentencing, um, you know, orient individuals or, or, you know, folks to how sentencing works. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll spend the next few episodes talking about, you know, the different styles of sentencing, the history of sentencing in Oregon, um, you know, the values, why, you know, they exist this way. And again, some of the opportunities that may exist to reform sentencing. But, you know, for me, I think the big thing about sentencing that, um, that, that just that that I struggle with is the fact that we are depriving people of liberty and the the way in which we do it is not really at all focused on what's good for the community or good for the individual. It's just a you know this very punitive um, sort of punishment paradigm in which we're just throwing a number of years or months like in Oregon at people, but really with no understanding why. I mean, there's there's no there's no intention about you know changing or altering human behavior or conditions or circumstances for individuals so they you know don't re- so they you know don't reoffend um but it, it just seems like such a disconnected kind of system it's exactly I, I was going to go to the disconnect because you have a whole trial system where you have attorneys and judges trying to fashion resolution to cases, whether it's sentencing um, after a plea or sentencing after a trial. But once that judgment is entered and the person is convicted and transferred to the legal custody of the Department of Corrections, it's almost as though the judge and the attorneys like it's done. Like mm-hmm. it's off their plate, and it's it's always been amazing to me how little is done for those folks to actually follow up and see maybe if they did a good job, like if that was the right sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did the person you know do? Did they earn time? Did they get into a program when they got out? Did they do okay? Did they not do okay? But you know, you have attorneys um, and judges fashioning sentences, and then there's no feedback loop to tell them how good they're doing. It's gone. It's just, it's on, it's on to the next legal authority, which is the department of corrections. And And when you're talking about like these types of, some of these sentences that individuals are serving, you know, years, um, you know, a lot of the stakeholders won't even be around um, no. you know, the people who made decisions about no. these individuals to even see if these sentences made sense. I will um, say anecdotally, just, you know, to put a little levity in this, yeah. I have had clients as I was breaking down with them going to prison, telling me they can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, it's, it's really hard to, you know, for other people who don't do this line of work to talk about how, um, difficult these conversations and how personal these conversations are. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, we've talked to folks inside in custody and, and the reason why the arbitrariness doesn't like sentencing is so, the reason why it's so, I, I think troubling to me is because I'll hear, you know, there are people that commit 
you know, non sort of quote unquote, nonviolent, non-person crimes that will serve these like short sentences and they'll cycle in and out of prison. They'll do two, three, four year stints, you know, whatever, and come out. People who commit more, you know, um, serious crimes will serve more, um, but they may too also cycle in and out because it may be like short sentences. And what I've heard from people inside, it's sort of like that 10 year mark is when you start to see sort of some behavioral changes. People feel like that's a long time, that they have to be there for a while, that they engage in, you know, whatever, some program, they have to live there, basically make like a life there. But at, at, at the same time, it seems so weird to me that, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these people that uh, are cycling in and out, like, you know, incarceration just isn't working, right? Like they need treatment, they need programming, you know, they need like something different. And obviously it's not working and you have that churn. And then you have this other side of it where these people that are serving like 20 years or 15 years or 30 years or life are like role models, you know, like inside the prisons, like they, they, they go to work, they're engaged in pro-social behavior or whatever, you know, they, they're not going to commit another harm or anything like that ever again, but we're keeping them sort of in prison to die, which doesn't make any sense. So, it, you know, what, it, intuitively it's like all like backwards. Uh, I don't know. Like it just is, it, it's kind of like, um, it doesn't make any sense and you're getting all these sort of odd outcomes from how sentencing works. So, you know, as we talk about this next month, you know, we'll explore a lot of this, but that to me is like the thing, like when you start looking at the results, it's like a 0% like success rate when you, when you really think about it, you know? When you, yeah. I mean, just when you talk about, you know, trial courts imposing life sentences on people for public indecency with mental health issues, I mean, talk about a nightmarish public policy outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I know we don't want people being indecent in public, um, but a life sentence, I mean, that's what we're seeing in our courts. um, And those outcomes make no sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, any last thoughts uh, you want to give listeners about, you know, sort of general introduction to sentencing? Uh, I, I, you know, you know me, I think this is a really interesting area because it's an area of the law that's governed by rules and incentives. And so it's always interesting to see how people respond to rules and incentives and to see how we can change the rules to, to um, incentivize different types of arguments. And we've had remarkable success over the last few years in Oregon with uh, our capital defense reform or juvenile justice reform or property crime sentencing changes and some of the changes to our drug policies. And, you know, with the announced intention to possibly close some of our prisons, I'm excited because I do think we're going to have, you, you can't do these things unless you start talking about mm-hmm. changes to sentencing policy. And with the session coming up, um, it's an exciting time. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation and, you know, digging in and, you know, in previous years when we've been able to do our women in prisons conference, you know, Eric uh, has come and um, done presentations on the history of Oregon sentencing. So I'm excited to like have that uh, sort of presentation conversation because I can nerd out a little. <laughs> In and out, but you know the thing is, it's like sentencing is so complicated. Um, you know, uh, especially for some of these more serious crimes, because we've changed these sentencing structures throughout the years, but they've been sort of prospective only. And there's legal structures that 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 create sort of that limitation. But um, but then you have people if they were sentenced between like ninety five and ninety nine, you know, they get a certain sort of sentence at 99 to 2003 or whatever it is, you know, and so on and so forth. And then you have now a population of people in custody that, you know, you have to be some sort of like, 
you know, uh, savant to be able to figure out and decipher like, um, uh, you know, who's doing what, but, um, yeah. So as we, uh, wrap up, um, as you, we do, yeah, always, you, you should go first on this one. You should go first. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I think for me, the biggest hope is what we saw over the election cycle is a lot of young and new people entering the political sort of uh, realm. Like there were uh, a lot of uh, people who hadn't holded uh, elected positions before that are now holding elected positions and just a new sort of generation of uh, politicians entering both local politics, but also the federal at the federal level as well and bringing just a whole new energy and perspective and not like, you know, uh, hung up on the sort of old paradigms and thinking. And, you know, to me, it's really exciting to see sort of this new generation of um, elected leaders come in. You know, I didn't know what I was going to say, but one of the things that's given me a lot of hope over the last few weeks since the election is how um, elect President-elect Biden and the folks surrounding him have not tried to thumb the other side, you know, not tried to rub it into the other side. I, I'm so tired of this caustic culture where the strategy from politicians and elected officials is to be super aggressive and rub the opponent's nose into the ground when they can. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by how post-election there has been an attempt to really try to bring the country together. I don't think it's going to work. Um, and I applaud him for trying it. And I think it's the right tone to be successful. And I'm just really glad that they're not out there being super petty and, you know, trying to use the same tactics that have been used against them and to do what... Um, Michelle said when um, you go, when they go low, you go high. And I've been really happy to see that. Um, We haven't talked about this, but there's also hope on the horizon for our Portland Trailblazers who had an amazing, if not the best off season, possibly aside from the Los Angeles Lakers and the entire NBA. We'll definitely have to come back to that (laughs) and track that. But yeah, we, you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation and getting back into the groove of the podcast. Um, So it's, uh, yeah, good to connect with you this way. Uh, And we look forward to coming back next week and continuing our conversation about sentencing. Thanks for listening. This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob and Singh. And I'm Eric Nature. And we'll see you next week. 